coming back to the High Motor Podcast this week. Like I mentioned in Sunday's episode, it's going to be a double dip week on the High Motor Podcast. Two episodes this week, two episodes per week from here on out, and I appreciate all of you who have been checking out the show. First this week, it's going to be Adam Brenneman. He's the former Penn State tight end, former UMass tight end. Now he's doing some TV work, doing some radio work, and he has a new podcast that dropped four to five weeks ago. I want to talk to him about some things Penn State related, and then it's an old friend, Chase Kitty, talking college football odds parlays to make you money in week four it's college football all the time on the high motor podcast let's fire it up for week four adam brenneman former penn state tight end former umass tight end and host of the appropriately named podcast the adam brenneman show hey adam thanks for chatting as the season gets fired up here you know weeks like this do you miss playing or is are you just fine being done with football I appreciate you having me on, and it's a, I get that question a lot. I do miss it. I think at this point, though, for me and in, in my career, I know that I kind of exhausted every possible uh, opportunity or every possible scenario that could allow me to keep playing. And then, you know, so that, I don't really miss it from that standpoint of that, that if I, if I, uh, if the opportunity was there, I wouldn't even be able to play because of my body. So it just, uh, it, it helps me have peace of mind knowing that I, you know, kind of gave it every last shot I had. How is the body? I know that you had some pretty severe knee injuries, and that ultimately led to your your final retirement in 2018 after the the earlier retirement. But you know, as you wake up every day, how does it feel? It's funny when you say that. Not many 20-something year olds have multiple retirements, so uh, that is, it's always it's always funny to think about. But I. Uh, I feel good. I mean, my, my knee is always will kind of be a problem for me. And that's obviously what ended my playing career. And I know that I'll need a knee replacement someday. Not sure exactly what that'll be, but, uh, I mean, for everyday life, it's fine, but I obviously, you know, can't really run or do any of those kinds of things. So uh, it's, it's, it is what it is though. You know, it's part of the, the risk of playing the game and we see it all too often in football. You just saw it with, uh, with Andrew Luck, you know, deciding to, to stop playing due to his nagging injuries. So, Adam, I reached out to you after listening to that second episode of your podcast. I think you've done three episodes, correct me if, if I'm wrong in that, but I, I listened to that second episode, the episode with Christian Hackenberg, your former teammate at Penn State, and I really just had a lot of questions for you after listening to, to that conversation. So let's let's start right here. You were talking about during your recruitment, uh, Bill O'Brien, then the head coach at Penn State, told you guys not to really worry about the potential sanctions from that Sandusky fallout. Do you believe that that he and the rest of you know Penn State staff and administrators just didn't really have a clue what was coming their way? I do, and I think everyone around that university kind of felt the same way. Uh, you know, if, if, if you remember, you know, it, it feels like so long ago now, but, you know, there was the point where, uh, you know, Jerry Sandusky had been, had been charged and arrested, and then there was that, those months of, uh, you know, the rumors of what was going to happen, what was the NCAA going to do, and, they, and they, they kind of the assumption around, not just Penn State, not just the coaches, but around the media too, was that the NCA really didn't have jurisdiction to do much here because it wasn't, you know, it's not a something like a recruiting violation or a competitive advantage. Um, and then, and then it wasn't until about a week before the free report and and the sanctions were going to be announced that you know the, the whole term of lack of institutional control started getting thrown around. Uh, and then that's kind of what we started here, and you know we went from literally thinking that the sanctions were going to be a slap in the wrist to hearing that it could be the death penalty. It could be a television ban. It could be a loss of scholarships. So it kind of flipped overnight. It seemed like for us to, to something that could be pretty bad. 
Were you guys getting more information than than what the the general public and what the media was able to get before that came out? Did you have an idea? I know you mentioned that we all kind of started hearing the lack of institutional control. What was that, like seven to ten days or something like that before the report and before those sanctions actually came out? Did you guys, I know you were just kind of, not to say to diminish what you were, but you were just a recruit. You weren't officially part of Penn State, but were you getting information before it actually came out? You know, not really. We were finding out a lot of stuff just from, just from the media and I think that was kind of the nature of the entire thing is that no one really knew what was going to happen. No one knew what was going on. I mean, I found out about the sanctions from listening to the radio. So, I mean, there was really, there was really no, no precursor for us as to what was going to happen. I mean, the, my, my final conversation with O'Brien before the sanctions were announced was that uh, O'Brien had, had called and said, uh, Hey, you know the sanctions are gonna, are going to be pretty bad, but but you know the the one thing I wanted was was that we were still going to be able to play on television, and you know his whole thing was kind of if you can play on national TV, you're gonna you're still going to be able to recruit, you're still going to be able to uh, you know be a big time program. So that was kind of I remember him telling me that you know we're, we're going to be on TV. I don't know what I don't know what the other sanctions are going to be, but I know we're going to be on TV. So that that was kind of uh, the the whole thing for about that that week was the conversation of whether or not we were going to have a TV ban, which I don't even know how a TV ban would have worked, but uh, but that that was definitely one of the topics of you know trying to ensure that, and I know Brian was working on that, trying to ensure that that we were you know going to be allowed to play on national television. And then after those sanctions come down, you and Christian were talking about there was a phone call with. Not sure how many several Penn State commits in which you guys basically discussed a mass commitment, excuse me, a mass decommitment. You're kind of going through programs in which a lot of you had offers. You can maybe flip all flip to one schools. Um, you know, how many guys were on that phone call and how close was that to actually happening? You know, it's funny to think about just because when the sanctions were announced, to be honest, like there wasn't even really a thought initially. Like, like the day they came out, like the initial thought and the, the initial. Uh, the initial narrative in the media was that like we couldn't actually go to Penn state still, you know what I mean? Like, like we, like it wasn't really a decision in the, in, at first because it was just like, we assumed the program was everyone was going to leave. There's going to be a mass exodus because they announced the players could transfer without penalty immediately. And uh, you know, it was kind of like, we don't really have another choice. So we had a conference call that night, I think, or maybe the next day or something with, uh, all the commits, not all of them, but you know, a good amount of the commits in that 2013 class, and and we knew that we wanted to kind of stay together, so we were just trying to figure out where we could go, and just the different schools we all we all had offers from, and and uh, you know, it it, it was I, I don't know how serious it got. I mean, it was there was just so many moving so many moving pieces at that point. No one really knew what was going to happen. Uh, I mean, but I, I had conversations with a lot of schools at, right when the sanctions came out, and obviously every school. Uh, you know that 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 I had said no to obviously comes out of the woodworks and starts calling again and texting and emailing and Facebook messaging and and they all want they all want to talk to you again because obviously like I said no one actually thought we would still go to Penn State. What was the the recruiting pitch like from all those schools that you had said no to? What was it? an uncomfortable experience what they were I know that you know that's that's how it's always been in college football that's how it always will be guys will be on you no matter what's going on but what were they kind of selling you on was it more you can't go to Penn State you're never going to do something at Penn State or was it still more of this is what we have to offer how much negativity was involved in those calls and text messages and Facebook messages from other programs it was definitely both I mean I I do remember that a lot of it was like you know a coach calling and said hey man I'm so sorry 
you know, this must be tough for you guys. I know you really want, I know you love Penn State, you know, would just love the, you know, love the opportunity to talk to you again. If you, you know, can assume you're going to go elsewhere. It was more of that, to be honest with you, which I honestly probably is surprising, but uh, it's funny. I still, I still go back sometimes and I, and, and like read some of those messages I have on Facebook and different social media from coaches. And they all, after that, after those, when the sanctions were announced, they all were pretty much like that, you know, just like offering their, 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 I don't want to, I don't know if condolences is the right word, but just, you know, saying, Hey, well, I'm thinking of you. Uh, if you want to talk, let me know. I'm not sure if you're willing to even talk about this, but were there some coaches that, that approached you in, in a manner in which you, you didn't really appreciate during that time? Uh, I don't think so. Not really. I mean, I, I, my recruitment was pretty, it was pretty straightforward from the sense of, I had a really good like support system and, and my parents were awesome. And my high school coach has been through, had been through the recruitment a ton of times, big time guy. So it was pretty much, you know, there was really no BS in my recruitment. I mean, it was, it was all, it was all straightforward. I mean, I know that Penn State, other guys had, had issues like, you know, the whole story of the Illinois coaching staff showing up at campus at Penn State and, you know, kind of camping outside of the guys' apartments at Penn State when the open transfer rule happened. So, you know, but as far as me, I, I don't, I really don't have any bad experiences from my recruiting process. I think a lot of that too had to do with that. I committed early to Penn State. You know, I was a junior when I, my, my recruiting started early. I committed early. Uh, and there was never really, until the sanctions came out, there was never really anyone trying to sway me. And then that only lasted, you know, a week or two until I announced I was going to stay at Penn State. And then you get there in 2013, so you weren't there for the, for that first season after the sanctions come out, that first O'Brien season. But when you got there in 2013, um, you, you know, every, there's still a cloud, at least from, from my perspective, 10,000 feet, there's still a cloud kind of surrounding that program. And when you go out on the road, I'm curious, how were you guys treated uh, by opposing fans and others on the road in that first year? You know, I really can't think of any times that we were treated that poorly. I mean, going to – we played at Ohio State. I remember the Ohio State fans, uh, you know, shouting some things at us. But, I mean, other than that, I really, I, really don't, I really don't know that we were treated that poorly. I think a lot of it, too, is that within the Big Ten, at least, I think a lot of – and with the opposing teams, you know, a lot of them realized that. I think, I think felt like, like we had gotten treated unfairly by the NCAA and I think a lot of them you know at, at the end of the day felt bad for what happened to the program and what and what the players like us were having to go through because of it uh you know it really at least in the Big Ten it seemed like because everyone in the Big Ten kind of understood the scandal you know it wasn't until you know when I went to UMass I was shocked at how little you know everyone knows about the Penn State scandal but of how little people actually know about what really happened or uh you know it, it just just People don't seem to really know the facts. You know, it's amazing how Joe Paterno's name, you know, if you talk to people who don't really know or didn't really follow the scandal, don't know Penn State, you know, a lot of people, to be honest, and I think I saw a poll that, that said this, think that Joe Paterno was, you know, abusing children, which is could it be farther from the truth. But I, I heard that first when I went to UMass, because that's obviously pretty far removed from Penn State and that, that the scandal. And, and uh, it was just amazing, like, how and it, and it goes to the plan of the media narrative of how the media – you know, in that whole in that whole time of the scandal, just kind of blew that thing up, and and before you know it, no one really knows what the facts are. No one knows what really happened. It's just that you know this negative cloud over Penn State and Joe Paterno. How is how is Joe Paterno viewed or, or known or viewed within the program in State College? I think he's viewed he's viewed pretty well. I mean, I, I 
you know, that scandal, there's so many pieces to it and so many moving parts and so many things that we don't really know about. Yeah. I think that at the end of the day, Joe Paterno did a lot for that university and did a lot for those young men that came through the school and really built Penn State into what it is today. I think that people will never forget that. At the end of the day, though, I think obviously people will remember, you know, his, his final quote, I think it was before he died was, you know, with, with, in hindsight, I wish I could have done more. So, I mean, I think there's two parts to that legacy and, and I, I, I try to not commit all that because I think that it's just so bigger than all that. It should be bigger than Joe Paterno. And, and at the end of the day, a lot of people were hurt at Penn State and that scandal. And I, and I think that, you know, sometimes that, that, that community does, doesn't do a great job of, of remembering that it's about the victims first. But I think they've gotten better at that as time has gone, time has gone on. I've had to remind myself of that when I'm in the middle of it and saying, and saying, you know, while I'm upset about the sanctions and I'm upset about all that stuff, you know, at the end of the day, this is this was about more than just our football team and our program and what's happening to us. So I think, you know, it's, it, it was a healing process and it's they're, they're still going through the healing process. It'll it'll be you know going on for a long time. But uh, I think that uh, that at the end of the day, there there's it, it is impressive that 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 school and that program has been able to come out of it a lot. You go back and you mentioned the the media coverage of it. What do you think, in your opinion, the media got wrong with all of that? What do I think the media got wrong? And I don't mean to lump. I, I hate it when people just say the media for everyone. I know that a lot of people probably covered it, it very well and very fair. Um, but, you know, it has been brought up that, that some people didn't like the media coverage. You mentioned it earlier. Is there anything that... Uh, a misconception or, or something that you, you mentioned that you would like people to know that Joe Paterno didn't actually abuse children. I don't know how somebody could possibly know what the Sandusky scandal was and not actually know the fact to that. But in terms of you know misconceptions and what the media might have portrayed differently, is there anything that, that you wish um, specifically that, that they would have done differently or anything that you still think about now, what, six, seven years later? You know, I think that... It, when when I talk about the media and the way they covered the scandal, it, it, it's not even necessarily the way the media covered it. I just think it's it was kind of the perfect storm of of how it blew up. And, and really, this is you know, we're talking 2012 or whatever it was, 11 maybe. Really, at the end of the day, you know, we live in a world right now of like barely 24 hour news cycles. Like you know, Donald Trump will say something one day, and then there's a new thing the next day, and everyone forgets about what just happened. Yeah, it, you know, so it, like that, it wasn't like that back then. I mean, this Penn State story was on the news for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, uh, and I mean, the, the the media frenzy that ensued from it was crazy. And I think that also the media was very quick to attack the the culture of Penn State and the and the community and kind of lump all that in together. Where where really at the end of the day, this was the actions of of Jerry Sandusky one man and before really any facts were out or, or anything of that nature, it was really, you know, and even, even Mark Emmert when in, in his, the NCAA president, you know, attacked the Penn state culture and the, and the, the program. And, and a lot of people, I think a lot of people that have, that have been at Penn state and are part of that community felt very offended by that. It was portrayed in the media that 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 community had did something that would enable that to happen, and that they wouldn't have done something to stop it if they knew it. 
going back also on that podcast, you and Christian were talking about the recruitment and when Bill O'Brien told you guys that he would see your career through. I'm not sure if he told both of you that or just one of you can correct me on that, but he had told either one of you that he would see your career through. Um, and I know that Christian even said that he spoke with Bill O'Brien regularly when all of those uh, NFL interviews, those job rumors were flying around at the end of year one um, and then also at the end of year two there. And he kind of assured Christian that all was well. You know, all, all he was worried about was signing an extension with Penn State, and then he's just gone after 2013. How did all that go down? Was the team notified before he left? Yeah, that, that was a that was a tough time, just because you know we had already been through a lot. We had been through the sanctions and decided to stay. You know, the, the players on the team uh, had been through. Uh, you know, had been with Joe Paterno. He had died, and then. You know, Brian comes in, and I, it was just a difficult time. I mean, the timing of him leaving was that we were on break when it happened. So we, I mean, you know, I got a call from Brian on New Year's Eve and uh, just said, hey, listen, I'm going to go leave for the Houston Texans. I love you. I appreciate everything you did for me. I know you're not going to like this. Hopefully I can draft you someday. Uh, and that was pretty much it. But, I mean, you know, the, the, there wasn't a luxury of getting the team together because everyone was on break. So, it was it was a tough time, and I think you know everyone kind of uh, blew what Hack said about you know Brian uh, saying he'd be there. I mean, he told he told all of us that. You know, obviously, I, I think number one, a coach has to say that. <laughs> you know, when he's recruiting players, you can't tell players that he's thinking about leaving. But I do think it was different just because of the timing of like what we were going through at the time and what the what the circumstances were. You know, and, and if you remember, after O'Brien's first season at, at Penn State, there were rumors of him leaving after year one. Uh, and this was when I was still in high school, and, and that was kind of when we said to him, hey, listen, like, if we come here, like, you, you know, we don't want to be dealing with these rumors every offseason of you going to the NFL. And that was kind of when he said, listen, if you guys come, I'll, I'll stay for your careers. And, uh, and, you know, obviously we know what happened after the next year, but, you know, it's all part of the business. I'll never fault a guy for making a decision he thinks is best for his family and and, uh, you know, a lot of stuff goes into that. I, I, I have always said every single player on that team would have left right then to go to the NFL for $8 million. So, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, Brian has a son with special needs, pretty severe special needs. There's a really good hospital there in Houston that, that, is, that his son's been, you know, been a really good fit for his son. I know that played into it. So, I mean, there, there's a lot more that goes into it than just uh, thinking about the kids that you recruited. So I, I'll never fault a guy. I mean, I have a good relationship with Coach O'Brien to this day. I know Hack does too. Uh, and that was, uh, it, you know, at the end of the day, we're all kind of matured and, and moved past that. Last thing for you here, I asked you how Joe Paterno is known and viewed within the program. And now, you know, six years after Bill O'Brien left, how is he viewed within the program of stepping up for those two years but then leaving? You know, how is he generally viewed, you know, within the program, within the community there in State College? You know, Bill O'Brien is is – pretty highly revered around Penn State just because I, I think for the time he was there those two years, I, I, I think that the fans will always appreciate him kind of bridging that gap and getting them out of that cycle. I mean, the fact that, that Penn State went seven and five or uh, that first year out of the sanctions is literally just remarkable when you think about it. I mean, you go back and look at what those analysts were tweeting and saying. I mean, I, I actually just saw a bunch of those tweets. I mean, like all those guys, all those ESPN college football analysts saying that Penn State would be like Bill Nova for the next 10 years. Penn State wouldn't be able to field a team this year. I mean, the fact that they went 7-5, beat Wisconsin, I mean, just really remarkable stuff that I don't think people talk about enough to this day. You know, what that program had been through and, and the fact that they were able to survive is, is, is really, it's almost a minor miracle. 
And I think that everyone will always appreciate Coach O'Brien for that. I've always said, I, I've often said, I think Coach O'Brien was the perfect guy for that job at that time. Uh, just the perfect kind of coach and the perfect kind of leader that that program and that university needed. So I, I think people will always remember that. I mean, every time you bring Coach O'Brien's name up around State College, everyone loves him. I think they're upset he left, but I, it's, it's obviously been a good transition. And Coach Franklin's kind of taken that program to a new level. Uh, and still, like I just said, I mean, the fact that they're, they're in the top 10, I think they're 12th or 13th now, I mean, really, and, and for the last three or four years have been one of those, you know, the programs that consistently are in the top 15. I think there's only like four or five programs that have consistently been in the top 15 every year. And I think they're like Georgia, Alabama, uh, and, and like uh, one of those other SEC schools. The, the fact that Penn State's in that is really, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And I don't think anyone, anyone would have expected that back in 2012 or 2011. All right, if you haven't tuned into Adam's new podcast, The Adam Berman Show, Life in the Red Zone, I highly recommend you do so. Like I said, those first few episodes uh, are great. Hey, Adam, thanks for the time today. Really enjoyed those uh, first few episodes uh, of the new show. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On Friday morning, last Friday the 13th, Chase Kitty texted me, hope you're drilling the under into the ground tonight with the Jayhawks. Love that shit tonight. And I responded with something immature that we're not going to get into, and I went on to say that Boston College as a minus 21 in Chestnut Hill was outrageously low. I predicted a score of 38-10 to 10 over Kansas. So a 48 total on, on a game with a total depending on where you were betting. I think the total closed uh, around 50 to 51, 52. And Chase, you took the under and Boston College in that game. And, and although I'm not sure this is the best way to lead into a podcast in which I'm going to say this is Chase Kitty. Listen to Chase Kitty. He makes money, which is very, very true. Your lifestyle proves that. But but that did happen in Chestnut Hill and you did lose a tidy sum of money. Chase, you can confirm that all of that is true, right? Yeah, especially the uh, immature response on your part. But you still lost how many dollars on that game? A couple hundred. I, I had the I had Boston College in the under parlayed, so I lost the money on Boston College, and then I lost the money on the under, and then I lost the parlay money, the the, the combo money. Did you feel better about the under than taking Boston College with a 21? Yeah, I felt better about the under because I, I thought it could just turn into like an ugly kind of game that, you know, maybe Boston College wins like 27 to 10 or something, and they don't cover the number. But I felt pretty good about that under, which is why it was in last week's column. And obviously, you know, I was wrong on both counts. You, you were wrong about the whole like Kansas is going to get slaughtered thing we were wrong across the board on this game nobody saw this coming but you know it's just one of those things where if you're if you're a professional gambler you lose games nobody hits 100 percent, and this is one of those things where you go wow that was unexpected I'll take my loss and move on and I think you texted me either when KU had took the lead like in the second quarter or they were down by like three or four or something I think they had taken the lead by that point and you had texted me would you take Kansas straight up and I said absolutely not I think I even would have considered still taking Boston College at the 21 even though it probably at that point had dropped to 10. So, that I mean, that game was shocking on a lot of levels. Jason Churchill and I discussed that uh, last Sunday. It was a very emotional uh, day in the Dowdy household. All right, Chase, a lot of stuff I want to get to with you. Uh, among them, your 2K parlay for this week. We want to talk about that uh, $100, excuse me, 100 money line parlay uh, where you have some thoughts and strategy on that. And also, you know, let's start here because a lot of folks are going to have their eyeballs on 
the big games in week four after kind of a light slate in week three. We have Michigan at Wisconsin. Wisconsin right now, we're recording this Tuesday. Uh, Wisconsin has a three-point line on that. I know that it opened over the offseason at Michigan. Minus four, so let's shift it a full touchdown uh, going into week four in Madison. Auburn at Texas A&M. Texas A&M a four-point favorite is what I'm seeing. And Notre Dame, Georgia. Georgia getting two touchdowns, uh, a 14 point favorite in Athens. We have some other strong games, but those seem to be the headliners. Are you touching any of those three games this week? I am flirting with the idea of putting something on the total in Auburn and A&M, and I like Wisconsin. Uh, those are those are kind of where I'm at right now. In terms of how confident I feel in those three games versus some of the other games I'm looking at, I don't really feel like I know any of those six teams really well yet. Wisconsin, Michigan, Auburn, A&M, Notre Dame, Georgia. I think you could make the case I'm most confident in knowing who Georgia is and what they are and how good they are. But I went back through uh, some of the Notre Dame numbers from the last couple of years, and Notre Dame is actually uh, 15-11 and 11 against the spread over the last two years. So uh, it's... I feel like we fall into a trap of thinking specifically about Notre Dame like, oh, that's a brand that's overvalued, like I should bet against them, when in reality, bookmakers are aware of that. They're always two steps ahead of you, and they are just almost put uh, positioning themselves to want to back the Notre Dame side because so much of the public is going against the Irish these days. So I kind of don't want to take a side in that Notre Dame-Georgia game. I like the under in Auburn and A&M and Soda Professionals. Uh, a huge amount of the public, like over 80% of the public, is betting the over in that game. But despite that fact, the total has gone from 50 down to 47.5. That tells you everything you need to know. Under's the side to be on in that game, but you've probably already lost too much value uh, since the beginning of the week when the, when the numbers started to drop. Looking at that just really quickly, looking at that line history in the Auburn A&M game, uh, for example, on five dimes, depending on what website you're using, even just over the last, uh, God, 12 to 24 hours, it shifted from 49 up to 50, and then, like you said, dropped all the way down to 47 and a half. So it was at 49 uh, yesterday, the 16th, at 3.56 p.m., and then it goes up to 50, uh, but what, an hour later, and then when now we're all the way down to 47 and a half, 12 hours later. So we've seen a, a pretty dramatic shift of, of up and down, uh, you know, up to one and then down two and a half points in, what, 12 to 24 hours there for that game. Yeah, and that's sharp money. That's always sharp money. The public doesn't move the line like that. You know, the only two things that can adjust a line that drastically are like player news. If a big time player miss, uh, is missing from a game, you know, last week we saw the Browns Jets game. They announced that Sam Darnold was going to miss that game because of mono. Ha ha ha! Making out joke here. Uh, and and then that line jumped from two and a half to six and a half. So that's one thing that can affect a line like that. The other thing, and the much more common thing, is sharps coming in on a side. Is professional bettors taking a side and driving that line down? So even though like 85% of tickets, it's early in the week, but 85% of tickets are on the over right now from some of the numbers I saw today, still Vegas is moving that line down because the public sum of money doesn't match the few private sharps, those professional bettors that have come in on the under. 
you mentioned Notre Dame, kind of that brand, and people thinking, well, they can you know play one side or the other, but but odds makers are always two steps ahead of them. Does that same thing apply to to a situation uh, like a Florida State, for example? I'm not I'm not sure what they were favored in their first three games, one and two, going uh, into Week Four here. Does that same thing apply to there when everybody's looking at Florida State and you know saying Florida State sucks, even though they did look a little bit better against a pretty good Virginia team last week? Does that same uh, perception of what Florida State is going through right now is that similar to to the brand? of Notre Dame. Do you see what I'm asking you? Yeah, I do. And, and I think the answer is, you know, being a, a popular public brand, uh, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword because for the most part, people love to bet you because they recognize who you are and they know that generally speaking, more often than not, you're pretty good. But when a public brand really kind of sucks, people turn really fast. And Florida State is a great example because most average college football fans, people that are at least somewhat interested in the national scope of things, what could they tell you about Florida State? They haven't been very good under their current head coach. They haven't been very good since Jimbo left. The offensive line sucks, right? So when you go and look at Florida State, which is a six-and-a-half-point favorite this week over Louisville, the, the number I'm looking at right now is that less than 10% of the public is betting Florida State. More than 90% is on Louisville plus the points. Again, it's early in the week, and the public usually bets late, so that that number could be drastically altered by the time we get to Saturday. But it's about branding. It's a double-edged sword. When you suck, and you suck in high-profile spots over multiple games in a row, this is what happens. Next thing is something that we have talked about uh, both on the podcast and offline when we see really, really low totals. And one of those this week is Michigan State Northwest. I'm not sure if it's the lowest total of the week, but it's got to be damn close to a total of 39.5 right now. And that's a very low number. Is that low enough uh, for you to pull the over, even though we've seen just complete uh, shit offense, especially last week, Michigan State versus Arizona State? Are you pulling the over on 39.5 on that game? No, if anything, I would probably take the under, but the, the side of this that I really like is Northwestern plus the points. And this goes back to something we've talked about before. When you have a low total, like 39.5, and, and you also have one side catching a bunch of points, and Northwestern here is catching nine points right now, or 9.5 even at some books, that's a great spot to bet that underdog because in a game that's assumed to be low scoring, you're getting a huge percentage of that overall total. Now, Northwestern's catching 10 points. That's 25% of the overall total. So that's a great bet just based on the numbers that Vegas is showing you. Does that make it an interesting parlay opportunity? And we'll talk about your 2K parlay, which you have Northwestern uh, getting the 9.5 here. But is it, you said you might consider taking the under. Because you're very interested in Northwestern at 9.5, does that make it more enticing to put it into a parlay with the under of 39.5? Uh, maybe just because you know that uh, the a lot of times you can't necessarily link the result of the game with the result of the total before the game even starts. But here we kind of know what this game's going to look like. This is going to be sort of Big Ten garbagey type of game. It might be a really interesting game, especially for football fans. But it's going to be that stereotypical Big Ten game where the first one is seventeen wins. So that that's kind of what we're looking at here, and knowing that's probably how the game turns out. You can link the outcome of Northwestern plus 9.5 and and under 39.5. Those multiplicative odds that you're going to get when you combo those two bets together are worth investing in when you consider how this game probably unfolds versus an average game 
where it's a little harder to predict how those two things are, might be linked. Like I said a second ago, so you have Northwestern in your, your 2K parlay. This is, for those of you who don't know what Chase's 2K parlay is, a uh, weekly $5 bet to win uh, at least $2,000. This week is $5 to win Twenty-eight, twelve, and I'm going to run through these really quickly. If you don't catch them all, uh, just hit up Chase on Twitter at Chase A Kitty. I'm sure he will gladly share them with you. Very quickly, there's 15 games in here, so it's a combination. I think we have FCS, we have college football FBS, and we also have one NFL game. So it's the Vikings to win, UCF to win, Northwestern getting nine and a half, Boston College to win, Syracuse to win, Wisconsin covering the three, Arizona State to win, Florida to win, uh, Bowling Green, Kent State in the under, TCU to win, Nevada to win. Mercer and Furman the under Missouri State getting the 14 points Eastern Washington covering 8.5 and and Villanova Towson over again if you did not catch all that Chase A. Kitty on Twitter I'm uh, sure he will gladly share those with you Chase my question for you is if somebody wants to maybe do like a 2k light like a $5 bet to win a few hundred maybe even a thousand not bet all 15 of those games which of those games do you feel the worst about maybe they could scrap and still make a tidy sum if they were to bet you know five dollars on eight ten or twelve games if you're looking at scrapping things the first thing i would scrap is the nfl game just because nfl money lines are a little bit tougher to bet just because the upsets happen more frequently in the nfl where things are engineered to be a little more even I don't think anybody would sit here and argue that they'd like to bet the Raiders in Minnesota with how good Minnesota's looked the first couple weeks. But ups, money line upsets happen in the NFL, and they happen in the NBA too. That's just kind of how it works. It's a lot harder to bet money line upsets in college football just because there isn't that institutionalized, even distribution of resources in college. There are you know winners and losers. That's how it works. So I would lose the Vikings' money line uh, I would probably lose Wisconsin minus the three just because it's a high-profile game. Michigan could win outright. I don't think that would shock anybody. Uh, I would, so I would probably lose that. I would lose the Bowling Green-Kent State under 59. I feel pretty good about it, but anytime you're, you're getting into MAC football and totals, like you know, this game could be 24 to 20. It could be 65 to 50. Like, who knows? It, you know, Mac football can go any direction at once. And I would probably drop a couple of those FCS totals as well. Uh, I'd say lose Missouri State because they can just lay eggs sometimes when they want to. Uh, I like them plus the two touchdowns at home against the Kennesaw State team that's rebuilding. But I would probably drop that out of the parlay as a, as a risk if you're trying to cut down on that. And Villanova Towson, the CAA plays uh, low-scoring games more often than not. So even though I think they cover 51, I would go ahead and get rid of that too. One that kind of stuck out to me that I haven't really gotten a read on these two teams thus far, Colorado is down in Tempe at Arizona State. We all know what Arizona State did up in East Lansing, but we also know they did it against a Michigan State team that has failed to score 10 points, I think, in five of their last uh, eight Power 5 games. I believe that's the number there. And this is also an Arizona State team that uh, two weeks ago struggled to do anything against a a pretty bad Sacramento State team uh, in Tempe. Then you also get Colorado beating Nebraska. We're not really sure how good Nebraska is. Struggling with South Alabama at home. uh, Looking good against a mediocre Northern Illinois team. So Colorado going down to Arizona State. You have Arizona State to win that game. What is your confidence level there? And do you care at all uh, what you saw from Arizona State two weeks ago against Sacramento State and what Colorado did against Air Force? How much does that play into that? I think if anything, I would be worried about 
buying high on Arizona State after a win in East Lansing. Uh, but that's more of a value question. That's less of a question about am I concerned they're going to win or lose. I, I like Arizona State to win this game. The spread's right around 8, 8.5, and, and that's usually the games that I look to target uh, for including in this, in this parlay because odds makers are clearly signaling to you if they hang anything above 7, 7.5, 8, that they kind of are looking for you to take action on the underdog. They want to side with the favorite. So th- that's one of the things I look for when I'm building this parlay. Uh, spreads that are in that 8 to 9.5 range, and then uh, money lines that are in the, the 3 to 600 range. Arizona State met that qualification, and I like the fact that I think they're, they're maybe a little more physical than Colorado. I know you could make the case after the Nebraska game that Colorado can be physical, but going on the road here... You know, I, I just don't like what I've seen from Colorado the last couple years, and I don't think they're quite there yet. And I trust Arizona State, especially in September. So yeah, I, I'm I'm fine with uh, I'm fine with that line. Last thing on the 2K parlay again, like I said, you have Boston College to win, and we had just mentioned Boston College getting uh, smothered by Kansas last week. Boston College going to Rutgers, and yes, Rutgers has looked a little bit better this year. I don't know how much benefit the doubt they deserve after the last few. Years. Remember, this is a Rutgers team that went to Lawrence and got smothered last year to probably a worse Kansas team. So, uh, what is the level of confidence? Do you have any numbers or any feeling of a, a team coming off of a game like Boston College has last week and going playing um, maybe an equal bad Rutgers team on the road. I love Boston College in this spot. Uh, I, I might bet Boston College on the money line straight up just because I'm that confident. I, I think what you're getting with Boston College here is, first of all, they're coming off a Friday game, so they have an extra day of rest and an extra day of prep. Boston College is a big, strong offensive line. They like to run the ball, and things got out of hand against Kansas because Boston College is the type of team where once they get down because of their style of play, it's hard for them to get back in a game. I don't think Rutgers is going to jump all over Boston College. I didn't think Kansas would either, but you know you got to make decisions at some point about what you believe in and what you don't, and I don't believe that Rutgers will do that. I think this is a bounce-back spot for Boston College, and I think you're getting them at a deflated value because they just got blown out by a usually bad team on a night where they were pretty much the only game being watched by everybody. So I think this is a spot where their value is deflated. I love using them to build a parlay. And I would say the same thing about Syracuse. They're right next to Boston College in my parlay. Syracuse has lost back-to-back games in blowout fashion to Maryland and to Clemson, but they're still not like an awful team, I don't think. They have a good coach and a good defensive line, and they got to figure some stuff out. They're playing Western Michigan this week. And they're at home, and the money line is minus 220. So that's great value for a team that's clearly better. Uh, so, you know, those two, those two teams, their inclusion there, it's more about bounce-back value and the fact that the public is going to be down on those two teams when in reality I think they're both playing teams that they're markedly better than. Chase, last thing for you here, and this is something that we talked about a little bit before we uh, clicked record, and this is a more of a strategy question. In, in your your weekly edge sorting column on Herosports.com, you started including a, a parlay. I think it's like a three or a four-team parlay, uh, in which you're taking favorites, not the heavy, heavy favorites, but you know, in the, in the plus five, six, seven hundred range, putting three or four of those together to make an even money, a $20 bet to, you know, to win $22, $23. And I know that you had mentioned that, that in the betting community, people kind of argue the, the, the sense behind that. Is it worth 
worth it to put four or five of those games together to just come out even? What is obviously if you're recommending that, it seems like you're in favor of it. What is the strategy behind that? And why do you recommend it? Yeah, this is a very new school idea. Old school professional gamblers will tell you that on the whole, parlays are a square game. You shouldn't get involved in them. The, the multiplied odds, the increased payouts, it's just a lure to get square money. And that long term, you're not going to make money betting parlays. But there is a new school of betting of which I am to some degree a part of, I think, that says if you really know what you're doing, you can gain an advantage over casinos, over odds books, over sports books by smartly building these money line parlays where the individual odds of losing are so low that you actually can gain a financial advantage. Now, this is especially true in college basketball because college basketball, it's much easier to be dominant and consistent. You know, it's a game that's it's centered around five, six, or seven players, so I'm slamming money line parlays in college basketball all season long, and I do very well with it. Football is a little trickier because it's there's just so many variables to account for, and that's why a lot of pros will tell you to stay away from this in football. But you know, it's it's just something I wanted to try out a little differently this year to try to bring my basketball model into my football column that I do. Uh, you mentioned edge sorting; it's out every Thursday. It's something I wanted to include uh, at the end of the column, not not the very end when we do two K parlay, but right before that. Try to build one of these money line parlays, and we have. To the old school better's credit, we have been burned a couple times already this season. So that's one of those reasons why you don't necessarily want to do this. Uh, through three weeks, the money line parlay, is, the plus 100 money line parlay, is one and two. We won the first one. We got burned on the Cal Washington game in week two. And then last week, we got burned on the Michigan State ending so, with Arizona State. So two just really unforeseeable outcomes, I think. Uh, not just what happened, but sort of how they happened with the crazy late game in Washington State that went till 2 o'clock in the morning, and then the the field goal that gets taken off the board because if they had 12 people in the field. It's, it's just that kind of stuff you can't see uh, coming, but that's sort of the argument against these parlays is there's always going to be weird stuff that happens that you can't see coming. I think over the long haul of the season, it's probably going to pay out well. I think we probably finish in the black on these parlays, but we'll see how it all unfolds, and, and that's probably something we can check in with later in the year and see how it does. Yeah, really small sample size there, uh, but we will have Chase uh, every single Wednesday on the High Motor Podcast, and at the end of the season, we'll look back and uh, and see how how those uh, parlay money lines work. Okay, I will be back on the High Motor Podcast uh, this Sunday, Sunday, September 22nd, wrapping up week four of college football, and then, like I said, I'll be back with Chase and another uh, TBD guest on Wednesday, the 25th. Come back. We'd love to have you. In the meantime, check us out on Twitter, at High Motor Pod, at Dowdy 88 Chase is at Chase AK like I mentioned hit him up for that 2k parlay if you did not catch all of those again big thanks to Adam Brenneman for dropping by this week that is Chase K making you money I am Andrew Dowdy and this is the High Motor Podcast I saw a friend today it had been a while and we forgot each other's names but it didn't matter cause deep inside the feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see 
And other worlds that lie in spaces.